It's a good morning so far. It's been a great weekend so far. We're continuing in our series called Unfiltered. And uh, as we dive in today, we're looking at 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11. You can go ahead and turn there if you want. Uh, and what John's doing right now is he's talking to us about something that you've heard before, but he's bringing us some fresh insight from it. And that is that we are looking at the idea of what it means for us to love. What John's going to do is he's going to link together the idea of love and action. In other words, we cannot just love with our hearts. We cannot just love with our words. If you do love well, love God or love other people well, it means you will translate that into something actionable, something that actually makes a difference. And so let's go ahead and jump in here. We're gonna start in um, 1 John, as I said, chapter three, verse 11, it says this. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Okay, so he starts off with this phrase for this is the message that you heard from the get, beginning, beginning of what? He's re- referencing back Jesus's ministry. He said, from the very first time Jesus started talking to us, he talked to us about love, right? So you remember this, and this is part of what preaching is. This is a part of what coming to church is. It reminds us of our priorities. It reminds us of what's most important. It puts everything back. I got 40 minutes with you, Max, right? And the world pours into discouragement, pours in frustration, pours in wrong values. And so he says, listen, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. What I'm gonna say, in essence, and what the scriptures are gonna say in a little while, is that if we are Christians and we do not love, then we're really probably not Christian. So love is the central centerpiece of the Christian faith. In a little while, John's gonna connect it with our salvation. But let's go ahead and let's let's take a look at this. Um, Let's take a look at what Jesus talked about from the beginning. So Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So notice right here, I highlighted this part right here that says, this is the first, right? So it's important for us to know that in this passage right here, he's saying, this is the first, but this isn't the first of many competing values. This isn't the first of many competing ideas. This is not the first of many competing commands. This is the first, by the way, and it is the greatest. It is the most important, right? So this command, whatever it is here in a second, this is the most important and this is the greatest commandment. This should be the priority of a Christian's life. What should be? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Look at these words, heart, soul, and mind. This was the totality from a Hebrew mind, from a Hebrew perspective. This was the totality of personhood. This meant everything that you are. We just use it differently. We use different words because we come from not a Hebrew mindset in America. We come from a Greek mindset. Greek philosophies informed everything we do. So we talk about being body, mind, and spirit, right? So he's saying, listen, I want you with your physicality, with your physical body, with your mind, your mental apparatus, and also your soul, your spirit, that which connects to God. I want you to take all of these things and put God first in them. That means there's implications for your body, for your thinking apparatus, and also for the choices that you make, right? This is the first and not one of many, but it is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he connects this idea of loving God first in your life. There are no other competing priorities. There are no other first places. If you put God second place, he will eventually be fifth place he will eventually be 10th place, and then he's eventually not a priority at all. The way that God talks about this is I'm first place or I'm no place, right? And then he connects it with this next verses. 
And the second commandment, the second one is kind of like the first one, love your neighbor as yourself. So um, this part basically in Matthew is basically saying is that when you put God first in your life, then necessarily out of having a first place uh, priority with God in your life, this will follow. And that is that you will love your neighbor as yourself. First of all, notice that he already assumes you love yourself. Like there's nothing in the, like the world's constantly saying, you better love yourself more, right? But there's nothing in the Bible that says that anywhere, never. In fact, it says you already love yourself. Take some of that love and give it to your neighbor, right? So he's connecting priority of having Jesus first with the priority of loving other people. So if you are a follower of Jesus, and if you walk with God, then that means that not only will you put in first place, but you'll also then take that and love your neighbor as yourself. It's always asked the question is, which is, what does neighbor mean? This doesn't mean your next door neighbor necessarily. It could include your next door neighbor. But actually what it means is your circle of influence. What is your circle of influence? All of us have different circles of influence. That circle of influence that you have, those are the people that we are to express our love and extend our love to, right? The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then look what it says. And all the law and prophets depend or hang on these two commandments. So what does that mean? That means we can go back to the Old Testament. We can look at everything that's in the Old Testament, all of the Mosaic law, all the laws handed down, all the rules in the Old Testament, and every one of the prophets that God sent into the world to speak his word to us. And they all summarize on these two things. Number one, have God first in your life or he's not gonna be in your life. Number two, love other people. And the beautiful thing about this is that as we are loving other people, it says essentially that we're completing or fulfilling that first one, that first commandment, which is to love God. But there is a reality in the text that we're looking at today in 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 12. And the reality is we don't always do this. In fact, often we are not loving God in first place. And often as a result, we don't love our neighbor very well at all. In fact, that was, that's challenging. I mean, it really is. Like, love your neighbor as yourself. That's challenging. I learned this very early on in my marriage. Um, so my, uh, my, my, I just, I couldn't quite get the rhythm with my, with my marriage when we first started. And we're, we were best friends. Everything was awesome. It was great. But like, I'm a words of affirmation person. And can I just tell you, that's the easiest one. Like, like literally, that's the easiest one to fulfill. Like acts of service people, you're like, oh my gosh, I got to do all that stuff. No, all you have to do is say, Mike, that was a killer sermon, you know? And I'm like, yeah, it was. When my wife does that, when I walk through the doors, she's like, you are the man. I'm like, you're darn right, I'm the man, you know? And I just, that's how it works. It's so easy. But I didn't realize that like that doesn't work for her. So I'd come home and be like, you're the most beautiful, incredible person. You're so smart. I love you. You're my best friend. She'd be like, cool, cool, cool. And, uh, and then one day, like I did the dishes, you know, cause the spirit led. And, uh, and uh, so I just, I did, the, I did the dishes one day and she came in, she was like, you really do love me. You really, and I'm like, you psycho. How, like, how does that translate into love? It makes no sense at all, right? It just, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. And so go back to the, 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 the verse 39 and 40. And the second is like it. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets depend on, if you're going to love somebody, you have to love them with a kind of love that they're able to receive, that they're able to encounter. Now here, the whole thing flips around in 1 John chapter 3, 12. It says this, um, do not be like Cain. So he's the like anti-hero in this, right? And this is terrible. Can we all say this? Like this is terrible for him, Right. So this would be like, you know, forever and ever and ever, as long as the world goes on, people would be like, don't be like that guy. 
You know, they like, hey, don't be like Mike. He really stunk. Like that guy was terrible, right? So, so do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Well, this doesn't actually tell us a whole lot about why he murders him and why does he murder him? Well, we don't really know exactly, right? It doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. So let's just go to the source itself. Let's go to Genesis chapter four, read the story of Cain and Abel and figure out what's going on right here. Genesis chapter four, verse two. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. So the first thing that we learned from this passage is that Abel worked with animals and Cain was a farmer, okay? Uh, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So let's go back to verse two again and take a look at that. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. The first thing that you need to know is that God did not approve of one or the other of these offerings in and of themselves. In other words, now Abel kept flocks, which means he worked with animals and Cain was a farmer. God didn't appreciate animal sacrifice more than he did a uh, vegetable sacrifice. There was nothing in that. That was not the problem. In fact, in the Old Testament, God actually required grain and offerings, okay? So that, that's not the issue that's taking place. So there's something going on in the hearts of these two men that differentiate them from one another. In other words, one was unacceptable and one was acceptable, but it has nothing to do with what they actually brought necessarily. Although what they brought was a reflection of their heart. And that was everything. So I want you to just kind of think about this for a second. I, I, have, uh, I have this pastor in uh, Indiana. So this was my first church. I was an associate pastor up in Indiana. It was United Methodist Church. It was the largest United Methodist Church in the, in the, in the state. And uh, I worked on this guy named Mark Beeson, and he was an amazing guy. I loved him so much. He died about two years ago from cancer at um, uh, too young of an age. But he taught me a ton of stuff, and it's the reason why we have grace here. Um, he taught me how to have a good staff culture. He taught me how to have uh, wonderful stuff, you know, great stuff. So all that to say, here we are one day. We're standing out uh, at the front desk of the church, right? We just built this brand new ministry with this brand new building, and, and things were growing, kind of like what's happening at, at Grace right now. It's interesting because I've been part of two churches that went from really, really small churches to really, really large churches. And, you know, I'm really blessed to have had the opportunity to do both of those things. So one day this lady walks in and Mark, is, Mark and I are talking with a couple other people. And, uh, and he's, he, this lady comes up to him and she goes, oh, Pastor Mark, I'm so glad that you're here right now. And I'm like, he's like, thank you, God, what's, your, what's going on? And she says, well, you know, we're renovating our house right now. And uh, we're just, you know, we pulled out this junky old carpet that we're not using anymore. And we wanted to know maybe if the church could use it, you know, if the church wanted it, you know, and Mark's like, your junky old carpet? Do you, I mean, no, no. And she was offended. She was offended by it. She was like, you don't want my junky old carpet in your $32 million facility? Like why? You know, and here's, why, did, why was her offering rejected? Because it was leftovers. So she's like, hey, you know what's really not important in the church? So here's my junky stuff that's not worthy of our family anymore. Let me just put it in here, right? And Mark said, no, no, I don't need that. Why? Because it wasn't about the carpet as much as it was about the heart. She was giving the leftovers. And this is exactly what happens to Cain here. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil. So this phrase, some of the fruits of soil in the original language is much more robust than it is in English, meaning this, that some of the fruits of the soil means that he just took some here and he took some there and he brought some stuff. So, so you know, you know here's, here's Cain. He's like, 
all right, I got some stuff that's, you know, I got some stuff left over. You know, I don't really like carrots. Uh, put some carrots on there. It seems some broccoli. Uh, nobody likes Brussels sprouts. So let me just give these to God, you know, and, and it's true, right? Nobody loves, like Brussels sprouts are terrible. Like they're just a terrible thing. Now listen, now listen. No, I know, I know you're whispering to each other. Every, sing, every, every single service has done this. And I know what you're saying. I'm not a prophet, but I know what you're saying. And it's this, he would like my Brussels sprouts. You know what? True story, true story. Do you know why? Here's why. Because you cover them in sugar, brown sugar. You put them wrapped in chocolate. You take a Krispy Kreme donut and just put it on top of it. You know why? Because when you get to the Brussels sprout, it stinks. It's horrible and terrible. Nobody wants it. One day I came in and my son was young. He was seven. He was crying. He was 17. And, uh, and he, he was crying. And, uh, um, <laughs> and as I, I walked in, I was like, what is going on? He's like, I don't want to do it. His mouth is full of Brussels sprouts. And, uh, and his, my, mo- my mom, his mom, my wife, the love of my life, she, she is basically like, she is basically like saying to him, you will, you know how moms, you get into the fight, like this is a battle of the wills. You're going to eat what I put in front of you kind of a thing. Like you will swallow those Brussels sprouts right now. And I walk in, I go, what's going on? And, and he's like, I got Brussels sprouts in my mouth, you know? And, and I was like, ooh, you know, I was like, oh man. But you know, I'm a good husband. So I'm like unified parenting. That's the way to do it. That's the way we do it. Right. And so he's just crying and crying. She's like, you better swallow them right now, son. And uh, finally, he's like, Dad, do I have to? And I go, spit them out, son, spit them out. And he just chucked them everywhere. Like, it was awful. It was like exorcist, you know? It was just awful. And, and, and my wife's like, really? Okay. But that's what's happening. That is the kind of thing that's happening right here, you know? God's like, I don't want your freaking Brussels sprouts. I don't want you to, like, give me the last little bit of everything that you have. I don't want your leftovers because leftovers are what you give to someone who's not in first place in your life, who's not important to you. Leftovers are some of the fruits of the soil. Just some fruits, some fruits here and there. As for an offering to the Lord, but, but watch this. And Abel also brought an offering. So he brings a different one. Remember, it wasn't about whether it was vegetables or meat, but what he does is he brings the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So a couple things here. The fat portions here, again, going back to cultural contexts, we sit around computers and we do tasks in offices often. Whereas a lot of these people back then, they worked outside in the hot and sun and did all kinds of stuff. So they needed the fat portions. They were additional calories and strength to be able to accomplish that. So these were the valuable parts of the actual animal. And so he comes and he brings fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now, there's only two guys that I know who raise animals for profit in our church. Maybe there's more, but these are just two guys. And one of the things that's true about doing that is there's a lot of things that are out of your control. Like for example, there are a lot of things like disease or pest that can come in and basically just kill off, a, kill off a bunch of sheep or a bunch of cows or something like that. And so it's really kind of an unknown. There's a massive dependence, if you will, on God for everything working out exactly the way that it should work out, right? We get some bird flu in here and we have to you know, kill a million chickens, right? So what happened was he gets the best of what he has. He brings the fat portions of the firstborn. So what Abel does is he doesn't wait he actually gives the very first. So imagine that you've got like 10,000 sheep and these are the first two that give birth, right? And there are some other pregnant ones and there are some others that are in gestation period and all that kind of stuff. But he comes, he goes, man, look at this. This is perfect. But you know what he has? He has it in hand. This to him is a dividend, if you will, right? He's got it in hand. Like this this is gold for him. 
So instead of hoarding it and saying, this is what I'm gonna keep for myself, he says, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna take this and I'm gonna give the best portion of it to God. And it's my first. And so what I'm doing is I'm taking my first and best, I'm giving it to God and I'm trusting for the second one and the third one and the fourth one and the fifth one and the sixth one, seventh one, eighth one, ninth one. I'm trusting that God will provide for me over time. Now listen, there is a doctrine inside the church that is false. It's called prosperity gospel. And the doctrine basically says you give $10,000 to the church and God will give you back a 10 times that amount. Do you think if that were true that people would not be giving to the church every single moment of every day? That's just silly. It's not even logical. It makes no sense. But here's what we do know. Here's what we know. The Bible does teach us when you are faithful with little things, he will give you much. That when you are constantly, when you are a person who is constantly open-handed with what you have in terms of your life, God begins to multiply that. So he trusts God with the firstborn. He doesn't know that anything else is promised. He doesn't know that anything else is going to happen. He thinks it will, just like we all do in our plans. I think it's going to work out, but he doesn't know for sure. And so there's a faith issue here. And I'm just going to keep talking about this one issue that, that I think just we need to start thinking about our lives in this context. And it's not just about money. It's about every way that you have been called to be a steward. And I'm going to keep saying this until you eventually can get it in your head, just like good is ahead, right? And stewardship is temporary management over something that belongs to someone else. And God has granted you and me temporary management over all kinds of things in our life. If you're a business owner, he's given you temporary management over your employees. We have 50-something employees at Grace right now. I'm temporary manager over things in their life, right? And here's what, here's what you need to know, that when God makes you a temporary manager, a steward over something in your life, he's looking for a return on that investment. He's not looking for you to basically say, here it is, I'm gonna give it back to you exactly the way you gave it to me. He's saying, I want you to return it. So watch this. So with my employees, my job is to create the best possible environment for them to have the job that they need to do, the calling that they want to execute in the best possible way that they can do it. And we're doing a good job with that. I hear it from our staff all the time. Great, not perfect, but great, right? So our job is to invest. With my children, my job as steward, temporary manager over my children. They don't belong to me. They're just with me for a good, you know, 17 or if you're a millennial, 35 years. And uh, just kidding, just kidding. I love you guys. But, you know, they're with you for a while, right? Until they go. And during that time they're with you, they are, we're temporary managers over them, right? So my job with my kids is to invest in them. I'm gonna invest Jesus into them. I'm gonna invest common sense into them. I'm gonna invest wisdom into them. I'm gonna invest, invest, invest so that the return is that they're better and better than we are over and over again. I used to tell my daughter this when she was really young. I told my boys this and they were like, uh, they were all excited about it. She would cry. But I would say, my, my, my darling, I love you with all my heart. I want you to be better than me. I want you to be better than your mom. And that would be the thing that makes me most happy. Why? Because God is looking for a return on his investment in you. And that has every, that's with your money, but it's with every other area of your life too. My job is to do what my father did not do to me, who took from me and took from me and took from life. That's what he did. He was an extractor. My job is to be an investor. I'm gonna invest in my kids, invest in my kids. I want them to walk away having hearts that know Jesus and walk with Jesus in such a way where I don't step back and passively manage them. I hear this all the time and I just wanna challenge you with it if this is where you've fallen because I think it's not really by, by intentional. I think it's just a lack of intentionality. Some parents will say, I'm just waiting. For, I'm just gonna let my kid make the decision about faith. Are you kidding me? Hold on. It, that doesn't work. Hold on, let me just say, right now. like, in what other area of importance do you do that? Okay, let's just talk about it. Do you say when your kid's like six years old, hey, Johnny, 
do you want to go to school today? You know, some kids would go yes, but a lot of kids would go no. And it, well, that's up to you. I'm going to let you find your way. No, you know, we want our kids to be competitive in the marketplace. We want to invest in them so they have education. They're able to return, they're able to have returns, right? They're able to like take care of themselves one day so they can get out of the house, right? And, and, and eventually that, and there's beautiful things about that. We want them to be strong and independent. God says, I give you these things so that you'll have an investment. He gave us his church and he gave us 25 people on the first day. And we have three campuses now. We have thousands of people that attend Grace. And I'm telling you what he's looking for is an investment. And Jesus tells this story in, in the scriptures. He's like, so there's this manager and he comes, right? And he's got these, he's got this three, these three people, right? And one guy gives him one talent, another guy gives like three or five, and then he gives another guy 10 talents. And then when the master comes back to see what they've done, the one with the one talent who was given a little bit, the Bible says that he just hit it in the ground, right? And when he did that, basically the master came back and what did the master call him? A wicked and lazy servant. And the ones who had invested it and returned more for what they had with their life actually were blessed with more. They were given more. That principle is same thing in every area of your life. If you invest in the people around you, there'll be a return for that. You invest in your church, there'll be a return for that. You invest in your children, there'll be a return for that. But every one of us are stewards. People say to me, like, Pastor Mike, I'm not a communicator. I don't stand up in front of people. I'm not a leader, but you are a steward. Whatever you are, you are a steward, a temporary manager over things that God has entrusted with you, and he wants you to have a return for them. So Abel came not putting God second or third, but putting him first and gave him the fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And God looked with favor on Abel and his offering. He said, yes, this is the offering that I will approve. And it's interesting because here, when we look at the passage, he says, but on Cain, um, Abel brought an offering, the fat portions of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering verse five, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. It's interesting. I mean, it's interesting. It's just, they, everything kind of falls apart right here. Everything falls apart. He was angry. He was downcast. And here's the challenge. Like when you find these moments in your life where you start moving God from a priority that's over here to being first in your life, people will respond to you different ways. When I first became a Christian, some of my friends, because I used to be a leader in partying and doing other things before. I've just always been a leader. And many of my friends just said to me, uh, hey, man, you're not as fun as you used to be anymore. And I would have to look at that, and I would have to go, okay, well, that's because my priorities have changed. I have different priorities. I'm still fun. I just fun in a different way, right? And then I had other people who came to me and said, hey, you are, you are you're, you know, so much better than you used to be. The, the things that you were, you were off track in many ways. And so there are people in your life when you put God first who will come to you and they'll say, hey, I'm 100% all in with you. And then there are some people who will come in and go, I don't like this new change in your life. But we first put God first in everything. And as we do that, God begins to bless. All those people that he subtracted from me that said, hey, man, you're no fun anymore. He gave me better friends and better Christian friends that would ultimately still be friends with me even to this day. We are still friends. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. His face was downcast. So how did God respond to Cain? Genesis 3, 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face depressed? Why are you downcast, right? So, so here he says, why are you angry? Just so practical. He says, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? Another way of saying this is, hey, just do what's right and you'll be okay. If you'll just do what's right here, you'll be okay. And what is right in this situation? Put me first. Don't give me the leftover Brussels sprouts that you have left. Put the best of what you have 
in the offering, and then I will, I will accept you. But if you do not do what's right, look at what it says, sin is crouching at your door. So we have uh, this children's, the head of our children's ministry here. She's uh, been with us for about 12 years. Her name's Rachel Hale, J. Sue Boxen. And uh, Rachel is a terrible person. And, uh, <laughs> and, and here's, here's why. Um, for 12 years, for 12 years, I will walk through the church praying as I want to do. And, and every once in a while, Rachel will be right down here behind a door, behind a wall. And as soon as I come out, she'll go, boo! And I feel my heart go, you know, like that. And, and I'm telling you, one day, if you're walking through the building and you see me laying on the floor, you'll know Rachel killed me, right? Like that, that's it. She just jumps out at me all the time. She's crouching around corners all the time in a much more like, more wicked and nefarious way, it describes sin as crouching at your door. Sin is like, it's behind your door. It's in your car. It's around the corner. And the Bible says it's crouching, waiting for the moment in which you walk by to destroy you, to undo you, to just kill your life. And you see right here that the author uses personification here, a literary tool that basically says, this is not just some inanimate thing. It actually has an intentionality behind it. Sin is crouching at your door. Watch this. It desires to have you. To have you means to control you, to kill you, and to rip your life to pieces. That's what sin does. It destroys. And then look at the words right there at the end of that sentence. But you must rule over it. It's interesting that he says this to Cain. Because this is what also God said to Cain's father, Adam. At the beginning of creation, God creates this stuff. He steps back. He goes, this is really beautiful. It's good. And uh, he's pleased with everything that he's created. It functions exactly the way that it should. And then he takes man, Adam, and puts it in the garden and says, hey, Adam, your job is to rule over everything. You're a ruler and a ruler. You're a steward over my creation. You're temporarily going to manage all this stuff that I'm giving to you. And you can do it in whatever way you want. You just have to rule over it. And the story goes that Adam did not rule over it. He actually submitted to it. And as a result, everything fell apart in the world. It's interesting that he says this to Cain. You must rule over your sin because it's crouching at the door and it desires to destroy you. And here's what Cain does. He does not do that. In fact, let's take a look at what he does. Verse eight. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, God has accepted Abel's sacrifice, rejected Cain's sacrifice. Let's go on to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? He said, I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's keeper? So what does he do? He deflects attention from himself. Again, his father does the same thing. When God comes looking for Adam in the garden, after he allows Eve to sin and she sins, and then he follows her spiritually committing suicide, what ends up happening? God looks for them in the garden. They're naked and ashamed. They're hiding behind trees from one another and from God. And he goes, who told you you were naked? And instead of going, I did not rule over it. I didn't rule well. I abdicated my authority. I was not a good steward. He deflects again. And he says, the woman that you put in here did it. Which has been a problem ever since, right? All right. Okay. So she made made this whole thing happen. And then he goes, am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that was, yes, you are. You are to watch over him as he is to watch over you and we are to watch over each other. But it's interesting because what happens is because he did not rule over the sin, it actually did kill him. 
And I don't just mean physically. God banishes him from relationship with him and from relationship with all other people. Marks him in some way, he, is, he ends up going out, right? But take a look at what happens. Years later, there are some children of his, grandchildren of his, Lamech and Tubal-Cain. Tubal-Cain is the very first metal worker that's ever mentioned in any literature in all of history, okay? He becomes the first person who creates weapons and war and things like that. Violence and anger perpetuate through Cain's line. In fact, people that are the descendants of Cain, which become a massive nation, are actually in opposition to God all throughout the Old Testament because of this one choice. You must rule over yourself. If you don't, you will introduce destruction into your family line. And he says, essentially, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, I'm gonna, do my, I'm gonna go my own way. I'm gonna put me first. And that wrecked his family line. There's a descendant of his about six generations later. He's bragging about the fact that he got angry and he killed somebody. The scholars are actually, believe it or not, they're a little bit divided on this passage because some people believe that Cain, when he acted out of violence, and, and the, the presupposition is he took a stone and bopped him on the head. And so the idea behind that is essentially he comes out, he's like very angry. He hits him with a, with a stone. Then Abel falls to the ground and he's dead. But many scholars think that there had never been a death before in the garden. And there had never been a human death before. They may not have even known, you know, Cain may have not even known that that was even possible. But certainly he had experienced pain. So he takes this thing, bam, and he hits him. And Abel falls to the ground. And I'm of the camp that thinks that he did not know. And I can't imagine what it was like when he was like, get up, get up, Abel. Abel. And then he shakes him and he sees the blood pouring from his head because the Bible says later that his blood came screaming to God from the, from the earth. Just a metaphor to say that God saw what he had done. And in that moment, Cain experienced death for the first time, a human death for the first time. And something broke inside of him and it broke from every ancestor down through the line all the way through the Old Testament. Canaanites are from the line of Cain. They become enemies of God and they're separated from him. Sin is crouching at your door all the time. And the Bible tells us that it's just not optional to play with it and fool around with it. We have to put God first in our life because the only way we rule well in this world is by having an actual king on the throne of our life. And when you do, you become a better father. You become a better husband. You become a better wife and a better mother, a better employer and employee. Why? Because I know I have a king and he's made me temporary steward over the things of my life, but he empowers me to rule over all that he's given me in my circle of influence. And that's what he's called each and every one of us to do. But we have to have a king on the throne. And the throne is not us, it's him. John says in verse 13, don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. But, but take a look at this. He says, do not be surprised if the world hates you. I think sometimes people look at this and go, the world absolutely should hate us. And so we act accordingly. No, it doesn't say that. It says, don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. But you know what? I find that as I interact with people all throughout the community all the time, and I'm not hiding my faith ever, 
People aren't looking at me and, and, and going, man, we don't want to be around you. We, I have non-Christian friends out in the community, and they ask me questions. They come for counsel. They want wisdom, whatever it is. Why? Because I've not orchestrated my life in such a way that they would have to hate me. But too often, Christians just walk around angry and frustrated, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But don't be surprised, he says, if people don't like you. You need to know that not everyone's going to like you. And I love this wisdom right now. You need to know not everyone's going to like you. And the fact that someone doesn't like you should actually not make a giant difference to your life. And I know that some of you are more susceptible to that because you're type that personal people pleaser type personality, right? And so it's hurtful to you when somebody doesn't like you. But if you put God on the throne and if he's first in your life, then what you receive from him is priority in your life. And then you begin to think about yourself the way he thinks about you, not the way you think about yourself or God forbid, the way someone else says that you should think about yourself. We hear from God. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life, from being not a Christian to being a follower of Jesus because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who does not love does not follow Jesus is what that means. So we know we can have a surety inside of us, right? We know that we have passed from death to life. Why? Because we have fond feelings about Jesus. I love Jesus. Yes, I do. I love Jesus. How about you? Right? Like, right? Like, but no, 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 not because of that, but because we love each other. Everyone in our sphere of influence, we are caring for and we're laying our life down for because we love them, because that's what love is. Love is this actionable thing. It actually means we must take action. Verse 15, he clarifies it even more. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. He's pulling forward the, the, the idea of Cain again. He's saying, when Cain hated his brother, that hatred turned into an action and that action turned into murder. And he's basically saying the same thing happens when we hate people too. That hatred doesn't just remain in the heart. It turns into an action and then it destroys someone's life. And you go, I'm not a murderer. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. I love you and you're a great person, I'm sure. But you're also a murderer. You know why? Because in hating people, we've murdered their reputation. You know what so-and-so's doing right now? Can you believe that? We've murdered people's opportunities by getting in their ways because we don't like them. We've murdered people's futures sometimes because we take from them. And it has everything to do with the idea that we don't love very well. And it says here that if you are a Christian, if you follow Jesus, then by nature, this is what it means for us to be these people, Christ followers, to we love. And so how do we do it? Verse 16, here's where we end. This is how we know what love is, right? How do we know? So just, just how do we know what love is? Jesus Christ. That's how we know because Jesus laid his life down for us. He laid his life down for us and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. So all of this comes full circle in 1 John by saying essentially this, that you knew from the very beginning that what it means to be a follower of Jesus is actually to love one another well, right? And the way that we do this is laying our life down for others. This means I have to love you the way that you need to be loved and you have to love me the way I need to be loved. And we get to love each other the way that we need to be loved. But there is something that's non-negotiable and that is that if you're a Jesus person, you're a love person. Watch this. If you take Jesus off the throne, and you put politics there, and I'm telling you because we're coming towards a political season. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, if you take and put politics here and you do it in the name of Jesus, 
It's idolatry. It's sin. It will now turn into a behavior that will then turn into a murder. And it happens all the time. Oh, President so-and-so and President so-and-so and these people and those people. We're not called to be those people. <laughs> if you have a king, you don't need to worry about a president. The king has to remain on the throne. And if he does, you'll love just fine. Amen? Father, we just come before you right now and we acknowledge that we have not always loved well. We have, God, we have murdered like Cain murdered. We have fallen short of expressing your love for the world and for those in our circle of influence. But God, we are stewards. And when you called us to rule in the domains of our life, we're, we're temporary managers or rulers in this world. And one day we're gonna be accountable for it. And I know God that you wanna return for it. So Father, in our families, let, us there, let there be a beautiful return for that. Let our children be better than we are, God. Let them love Jesus more. Let them do better in every way. We're excited about that, God, because we want for them the best. And Father, for our marriages, may we live as Jesus lived, sacrificing ourselves for one another. And when we claim just our rights or what our needs are, may we remember that, that you are the one that meets our needs, not another person. Father, thank you so much for loving us, even when we've never done this right. But Lord, we just wanna do it a little bit better. And we wanna make the commitment that there are certain areas in our life, God, where right now we've put you second and third. And sometimes you slip even further down. So we ask right now that your Holy Spirit would bring to mind the areas where you've been second, third, fourth. And Father, give us the courage to say to you, I'm ready to put you first in these areas. It's in your name we pray, amen.